Well, again, we welcome you this morning. So glad that you are here with us as we continue our time of worship and learning uh, through this incredible book. Uh, This year, we're making our way through the whole thing. um, And and hopefully, you've been enjoying that journey with us. And we find ourselves right here on this this difficult portion of the Old Testament, the prophets, um, but that these beautiful words from the prophet Isaiah. Um, Let me just pray for us as we continue our time. Gracious Father, we are eager to hear from you, to learn from you. God, even as we worship you, as we sing your praises, God, we are so thankful that it's not just us responding to you, but that you continue to respond back to us, that we continue to hear from your word, to learn from you, that your your spirit continues to guide us and convict us and to change us more and more into the people that you've created us to be. And God, I pray that we, even in this moment, as we look at these ancient words, that we would be once again gripped with the beauty of your son. We pray these things for his glory. Amen. Well, I haven't seen the new Superman movie yet, uh, but living in, in my house, I'm not really sure that I actually need to. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, um, Kelly witnessed the most ridiculous occurrence. Uh, She snuck out the camera uh, and got the following scene on video. This was unscripted, I assure you. Let's watch. And frankly, that's just sort of par for the course in our house. Uh, and whether it's, whether it's Superman or Batman or Luke Skywalker, it doesn't really matter. It's not just David, right? Eden loves to get in on it too. She'll be Princess Leia or Catwoman or Supergirl or whatever. And, and honestly, you know, I played all of those same parts when I was a kid. I mean, at least, at least the guy ones, right? Uh, I mean, that, it's just part of it. And kids, you do the same, don't you? I mean, don't you love to, to dress up and to, to imagine that you're these, these great heroes? I mean, I think it's why that it seems every month, right, there's a new super, superhero blockbuster in theaters, right? And I'm, and I'm not sure that we ever really grow out of it as adults either. Uh, I mean, some of us maybe. It's been a long time since I've, you know, donned the blue tights, red undies, big S, and the, and the cape. It's been a really long time, um, at least as far as, as, far as you know. Uh, could be my alter ego, I suppose. But, I mean, it, we, we grow out of it. Some of us, maybe, maybe that's never even been your thing. Maybe superheroes, you know, that's kind of a thing of the past. But we all love a good hero, don't we? I mean, think about your favorite books or your favorite movies. Almost always there's some tremendous hero or heroine right there at the center. And even in just in, in life as a whole, I mean, we're always looking for heroes, aren't we? We may not call them that, but we, we look at athletes, right, and, and then they sort of disappoint us, or we look at people that we respect and, and they don't quite measure up, or, or sometimes we look towards politicians. I think in some ways that's why it gets so dicey in that whole arena. We're not just looking for people to make good decisions, we're looking for people to save us. And every one of us, too, we, we, we like to imagine ourselves as the hero, don't we? Maybe not with some sort of superpowers, but we love to imagine ourselves rescuing the people who we love the most, 
or, or coming to their, to their aid at, at the moment of, of greatest need to be able to care for them and, and love them. Or, or really, even if we're honest, we probably admit that all of us are in need of a hero, aren't we? I mean, you might be a little too proud to admit it, but the reality is if you lock yourself in a burning building, you're going to be praying for a hero. You watch your kid get sick, and you're praying for a hero. You find yourself in a pit of your own debt, you know, so deep that you can't even hardly see the top of the hole, and you are praying for a hero. Why? I mean, why this obsession with the heroic? Of of these stories of of good versus evil and good ultimately triumphing. Why are we drawn to these? Because we know we don't have what it takes. Not one of us has what it takes. And and whatever situation we find ourselves, we all at times feel that deep inadequacy of knowing we don't have what it takes. This longing is written in our DNA. We are broken creatures, bound for death, longing for so much more out of life, waiting for a hero. We were created to be rescued. You can call me crazy if you want to, but I'm, I'm convinced that our obsession with stories like this, of good versus evil and good triumph, our obsession, which, which is really a, a phenomenon that pervades every culture of history, this, this longing for these kinds of stories, I'm convinced that ultimately it's because they're echoes of the great story. That, that every, every hero our culture creates is merely a dim reflection of the hero that we were made for. We were made to be rescued. And so stories like these touch us like little else. But here's the difference. What's the hero that you imagine, that you tend to be drawn towards? That's the powerful, strong, good-looking, charismatic, popular, right? Those are the kind of, and we all have a very concrete image of what a hero ought to look like, but here's the difference. The hero we need most is the hero we least expect. The hero we need most is the hero we least expect. And this morning we're gonna look at Three texts of scriptures. We heard them read just a moment ago. We're in the book of Isaiah, right? As we, as we walk through this, this entire Bible, right? And in one year, uh, we were in Isaiah last week. We'll be in Jeremiah next week, but we get one more week here. And some of you are probably aware that the Bible contains lots of, of promises or prophecies even of a hero who will one day come, right? Some of, some of us know that. And promises of, of the ultimate hero that we long for. And the prophet Isaiah, so many years ago, paints a picture of the hero we expect, of the hero we most need, and the hero that we indeed have. But before we go there, let me just add a quick word about biblical prophecy. Because I think sometimes when we go to these portions of scripture, we almost expect it to come out like a fortune cookie right? Short, easy, to the point, you know, like you just sort of easily grasp what's, what's going on. That's not how it works. In fact, what the prophets saw always came with more mystery than clarity. Always with more mystery than clarity. Uh, one of my old professors, he explains it like this. He says, the promises of God cannot be reduced to predictions. A prediction limits the word 
to a particular fulfillment, whereas a promise unfolds progressively over time. A promise is like a rolling snowball in its momentum and significance. Basically what he's saying there, instead of viewing every prediction or every prophecy as a direct prediction about Jesus, it's more helpful to view them as promises in which Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. It's a subtle difference, but it's, it's important. And in class, he kind of goes on and describes what the, what the prophets saw as what we see when we look at it at a mountain range. So if you stand in front of the Rockies, we did this as a family uh, a couple of weeks ago, and you, you look out, you see all of the peaks, right? And that tends to be your focus. You s- focus on the peaks. You don't see all the details. You don't see all the, the valleys and ravines. You can't tell what lies in between those peaks. In fact, you can't even tell from a distance which peaks are closer, uh, which, which peaks are, are higher, uh, and yet you stand there gripped by the beauty, right? Just overwhelmed. You don't, you don't need all of those details. And in so many ways, that's what biblical prophecy is. It's sort of standing in front of this beautiful mountain range and you get glimpses of these incredible things, but no details, or very few details. And yet we're still overwhelmed by the beauty of what they saw. And Isaiah's promises, these were written down 700 years before Jesus came, paint a beautiful picture of the hero we long for. But remember, the hero we need most is the hero we least expect. So Isaiah actually begins, that with a couple of these promises we're going to look at first, that he begins with the kind of hero that we tend to expect. He describes a conquering king, and a just judge. And we, we want this out of a hero. We need this out of a hero. We expect it out of a hero. And it is incredibly important. So let's, let's spend a few minutes looking at these two pictures that he gives us. Let's look at first at the conquering king. This is uh, in Isaiah chapter 9. Again, promised 700 years before Jesus came. Uh, this is a hero that, that he describes that we can get excited about, frankly. Here's what it says in chapter 9, verse 6. It says, for, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. It kind of reminds us of Christmas, doesn't it? I mean, for most of us, that's often when we hear these, these passages. And if we were to even look back a couple chapters earlier in 714, Isaiah says that this, this child of promise, in ways we can't even begin to understand, is going to be born of a virgin. That, that he's, he's not just going to be any child The government will rest on his shoulders, he says. It's this picture of of evil being destroyed, of of good flourishing and joy reigning. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. I mean, we believe that Jesus is fully God, don't we? It's an important part of what we believe. Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. How? I love this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, of of the Lord Almighty will do this. A conquering king. One, one who will rule. And, and this, I mean, this is the hero we long for, isn't it? This is the, the hero we, we expect. I mean, any hero worth anything at all ought to be victorious. 
This is a great example of one of those sort of mountain range promises, right? Because uh, this child came 700 years after Isaiah wrote these words, right? With the birth of Jesus. And yet this, this kingdom, it's not fully there yet, right? We don't experience all of these things that he describes. We still wait for it to be fulfilled, for him to rid the world of all the yuck and to make, the, make it new once more. And we, we love these kinds of heroes, don't we? I mean, Narnia, right? Aslan, the, the, the rightful king of Narnia, and Aragorn, the, the rightful king of Middle-earth, or even Superman, right? Conquering all that is evil in Metropolis. We were drawn to these kinds of heroes. And we expect these kinds of heroes. We also expect from a hero that he would be a just judge. That's the second image we see there in Isaiah chapter 11, if we were to move, move on a couple of chapters. I mean, how many times do you have to explain to your kids, well, life's just not fair, right? I mean, how many times do you have to say that? And, or even beyond that, how many times do you, do you feel the frustration of knowing that other people are taking advantage of you? feeling that injustice or, or even the ind- seemingly indiscriminate nature of, of disaster and disease and heartache. Or we, we look be- beyond ourselves and we see the injustice in our, around our globe, right, with poverty and war and slavery and racism and all of these things and we cry out, how long, Lord? I mean, isn't there anyone who will rescue us? No one who will stand for justice, who will make it right? I mean, we cry out for justice, don't we? And any hero worth anything at all better do something about it. Better fight against injustice. Of course we expect a just judge. Look at chapter 11, verse 3. So it begins, and Isaiah is talking about this descendant of David, okay? Somebody who's going to come from David's lineage And it says in verse three, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Some pretty powerful breath, isn't it? The abused will be freed and the abusers will be destroyed. And it says in verse six, I mean, this incredible picture. As it continues, it says, the wolf, at this time the wolf shall lie, shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. Do you imagine that? And it goes on, he talks about the cow and the bear, they'll, they'll be like best friends, and, and the lion becomes a vegetarian, he's saying, and, and, and kids will play next to cobras, and it's all going to be okay, and, and how? He says, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I mean, this is the ultimate picture of all that is wrong being made right, of all that is unjust being set to rights. I mean, and he, he's, he's picturing a day when, when injustice will so far be removed from planet Earth that even the wild animals will stop preying on the weak. And that, that's, that's the idea. Because that, that's what injustice is, right? It's the powerful preying on the weak, but even the animals will stop it. And all will be right. 
The wicked will be punished. The oppressed will be set free. This hero who comes, he will do it. It began with Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, and he will bring it to completion. These promises will be fulfilled on his return. And we want a conquering king, don't we? We want a just judge. I mean, sure, we, we, wanna, we want a God of, of grace and compassion, but we also want a God who will, who will make it right, who, who will rule with perfection and punish the wicked. I mean, at the very least, we want, we want him to punish the, the Hitlers and the Bin Ladens and you know, maybe the guy who cut you off in traffic yesterday, right? We, we want the wrong things in our world to be overturned. We're desperate for that. It kind of reminds me of this, this scene from, from Harry Potter. Um, you know, Harry Potter, like, like Narnia, uh, like Lord of the Rings, these are stories of good versus evil and good triumphing, right? They, they're echoes of, of, our, of our story. And if you know anything about Hogwarts, Dumbledore uh, is, he's a wizard. He's this great hero. And you just, you just want to hug him, right? I mean, he's got this twinkle in his eyes and, and he's, he's old and he's wise and he's strong. And you know that no matter what, he's always got Harry's back, right? If you know these stories, you know that that's, that's true of him. And yet at the same time, you also know that he is not to be trifled with. And so I, I just read the, the fourth book. I'm a little bit behind. I'm kind of a late adopter, I guess. Um, but I just read this this, this past week. Uh, it's a scene when, when Dumbledore has just rescued Harry from the clutches of one of Voldemort's villains. Voldemort, he's like an evil incarnate. I mean, he's the opposite of Dumbledore. But here's what it says. I love this quote. It says, at that moment... Harry fully understood for the first time why people said Dumbledore was the only wizard Voldemort had ever feared. The look upon Dumbledore's face was more terrible than Harry could ever have imagined. There was no benign smile upon Dumbledore's face, no twinkle in the eyes behind the spectacles. There was cold fury in every line of the ancient face. A sense of power radiated from Dumbledore as though he was giving off burning heat. I almost cheered when I read that. Because here, here he is, again, he's just so lovable, and yet he is not to be trifled with. And honestly, I instantly in that moment, I thought of Jesus. Like that, that is this, this picture of the God that we serve, that he is loving and gracious, but don't mess with him. Don't, don't mess with injustice. Don't, don't go down that, don't, that road. It's, it's not worth it. He will not be trifled with, and we are desperate for a hero like this. Make this world right. Establish a better kingdom. Punish the wicked. But wait a second. Crud. Because this is the moment when I remember me. And I remember that I don't really fit in a kingdom like this. Right? I mean, I'm, I'm not good. I'm... I'm certainly not just, frankly. I'm selfish and self-centered. I am part of the problem. And if I'm, if I'm honest, I deserve what Voldemort gets. People, this kind of hero. I mean, I mean just think about it. Heroes, what, what, do they, what do heroes do, right? They, they, they defend the innocent, right? That's what a good hero does. But I'm not, I'm not innocent, 
And, and heroes, they, they fight against the enemy, but truthfully, even on my best days, I tend to look a lot like the enemy. People, this hero that Isaiah describes in 9 and 11, this is not good news for us. A just judge, a conquering king. Friends, this is bad news at this point for us. But I'm not that bad, right? Listen to what this guy Solzhenitsyn, Alexander Solzhenitsyn writes. He suffered terribly in the, in the Russian gulag in the last century. He knows injustice and the longing for, for righteousness, for things to be made right. Listen to what he says. He says, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Listen, we are doomed. There is nothing we can do to escape a judgment like this unless. Unless God can find a way to destroy the evil in our world without also having to destroy us. Only if he can find a way to still rule victoriously over this broken mess that we've made and set all that is unjust and wrong to rights. Only if he can find a way to do that without also annihilating humans. But that's the picture we get as the story continues. And this is why, friends, the hero we need most is the hero that we least expect. C.S. Lewis writes, whether we like it or not, God intends to give us what we need, not what we now think we want. So what do we need? Who is this hero? Well, he's everything we've said, but he's also a hated sufferer. Not as many popular examples of this kind of hero, are there? Of course not. This is the last thing that we would expect, but the first thing that we need. And only if this is true could this hero ever possibly be good news for us. I mean, it's no wonder that so many missed him when he came, right? I mean, what kind of Messiah fits this description? Now we're in Isaiah 53, beginning with verse 2. It says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. Basically, he was ugly, average at best. He was despised and rejected by men, absolutely hated. This hero loses every popularity contest. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, so much pain. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Man, Jesus was hated. I mean, even, even the few friends that he was actually able to gather around himself on the night before his death, every one of them either abandoned him, betrayed him, or denied him. Left him completely. Those were his friends. Everybody else shouted, crucify him. Hero? Really? Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Hero? I can think of no one greater. Who, who came to, to bear our sorrows, who was pierced for our un- unrighteousness, crushed for our iniquities, who was punished in our place so that we could receive peace, whose wounds heal us like wandering sheep. Every one of us wanders away. Hey, we, we hurt the people we love. We destroy ourselves. We reject God. And yet, this same God has laid on him the sins of us all. What kind of a hero suffers? Not one we expect. The one we desperately need so that he can be both king and judge and yet continue to show us his love and his grace. So that we can actually live in this new kingdom that he promises for us and that we can experience the shalom that he offers to us. He is all of this for us. And honestly, even just as an aside, I mean, it's, it's hard to believe. Every time I read Isaiah 53, I'm just struck by the fact that this was written 700 years before Jesus came. That's just amazing to me, right? I mean, it just it so beautifully, so perfectly fits his life and death on our behalf, doesn't it? And maybe, you know, if you're a little bit like me, you tend to be a little bit skeptical and you're like, really? I mean, Surely some like early Christian snuck that into Isaiah, you know, and figured out a way to get that in there to, to make it... No, I mean, see this, this scroll here? This is, I know it's awfully tiny. You can't read Hebrew anyway, I'm guessing, so it's okay. Uh, but but this, this is one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, this is probably one of the greatest archaeological finds of the last century. And this is an entire copy uh, of the book of Isaiah. It's the oldest complete copy of Isaiah that we have. It's, it's an amazing thing. I've actually had the privilege of seeing the scroll. Uh, and it is universally dated at 200 B.C., 200 years before Jesus came. It just, it just amazes me the way, the way God works and orchestrates. And sure, we, we could say, well, maybe it's not about Jesus. Maybe it's about Israel or about Isaiah himself. I mean, there are attempts to, to say all of that. And there's probably a little bit of you know, echoes of truth because these are promises. But it's so clear that its ultimate fulfillment is found in the Savior who came, who gave his life, this man named Jesus from Nazareth. He may not be the hero we expect, but he's the hero we need. And you see how beautiful this is? This is the hero that we have. I mean, this this complete picture. He's all of this and so much more. I mean, if he wasn't powerful and just, frankly, we'd want nothing to do with him, right? I mean, he'd be just as evil as the perpetrators of evil if he was powerful and good and just stood back and refused to do nothing. We would want nothing to do with God if he was simply this this ruling king, this just judge. I mean, if he wasn't those things. If he was just sort of callous and stood back. But at the same time, if he didn't suffer on on our behalf, we would be as good as dead because every one of us is part of the problem. But in Jesus, we're given everything. And if this, is, if this is the hero that we have, how do we respond? Let me just mention a couple things. First, hope in the true hero. Because the reality is there is no end to the list of lesser heroes, right? 
of the things that we depend on or run to, to, to give our lives meaning, to say that life is worth living, that we're important or good. I mean, we, we run to family and food and money and sex and success and approval and all these, all these things, which frankly are really good things. It's just that none of them can rescue us. None of them can. If you follow Jesus, ask yourself, where is my hope? I mean, really, at the end of the, end of the day, what am I depending on? What am I trusting on? To know that life is worth it. There's meaning, there's purpose and value. And honestly, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't follow him, it's really the same question because we all depend on something. We all put our trust, our hope in something to, to tell us the answers of, of the things that we need most in life, our, our satisfaction and security and significance. So what, if not him, then Who? What? What are we trusting in? We can only stand in the presence of this God, this king, this judge, if Jesus is our advocate, our savior. Let me just give a quick example of, of this, of, of someone who read these, these verses from Isaiah and just completely changed their life. I mean, it's, it's in the New Testament in, in Acts chapter eight. I just, I just love this story. So Philip He's this, this new follower of Jesus, uh, and he comes across this Ethiopian eunuch. We don't know a whole lot of details about him or his circumstances, but he doesn't know Jesus, and yet he happens to be reading these exact words from Isaiah, of Isaiah 53. I mean, it's even quoted there in Acts. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And immediately, I mean, instantaneously, this man believes. He he realigns his hopes and right there, I mean, he sees water off in the distance. He's like, well, how about I get baptized? Let's just, you know, do it right now. I mean, he is so incredibly changed knowing that this is the God who has come, the Messiah who rescues us. Hope in the true hero. Nothing else can rescue No one else can be what we truly need. Jesus is everything and life with him does not disappoint. It's not easy. It's not free from difficulty. But it doesn't disappoint. And second, anticipate his return. I mean, the hero has come, okay? We can look back and and see that. And and this suffering servant, this has happened with with his death and and resurrection on the cross. We see that. And yet you you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that it's not all here yet, right? Because if if that was all he came for, it'd still be kind of lame, right? Because we're still a mess. Our world is still broken. We're still broken. There's got to be more to these promises being fulfilled yet for us in the future. There is more to come. And yet it It's all begun. And it's all guaranteed because of his death and resurrection. And so together, we anticipate his return. How do we do that? I I think there are a lot of ways. For one, we we remind ourselves in the midst of the pain and grief and sin and suffering that we experience that those things will not have the last word. That that your loneliness, your your shame, your depression, your your sickness, whatever whatever it might be, that those things do not define you. They will not have the last word if you trust Jesus. That he he will return. He will make those things right. And and we anticipate his return by, by 
working towards, you know, seeing echoes of his kingdom ripple out throughout our lives, through our world by by loving and serving one another and and fighting against injustice and caring for the poor and sharing the gospel and doing our work well and, and loving our families. All of these kinds of things are all anticipations of his return that we do together, encouraging one another, standing with one another. We've got to anticipate it. I mean, a couple days ago, um, actually it was right after I wrote most of, of this um, on Wednesday, um, and I left, left my computer and I, and I went and I, I sat uh, by the bed of this woman who's clearly dying, an older woman, and I've kind of struck up a little bit of a, of a pastoral friendship you know, with her over these last couple of years. And I just sat by her bed and I held her hand as she sort of clung to whatever's left of life for her. And I know some of you have had experiences like that. Some of you had multiple experiences like that. But if you've not, let me just say there's few things in life that sober you more than those moments. You know, the fragility of life and the inevitability of death, uh, the weight of what's really, truly important, and even just this inescapable desperation it's not supposed to be this way. That we weren't created for death, right? We were created for life, that because we, we chose to rebel against God in the garden, that that is what has, has allowed death to creep in as the ultimate imposter. And so what do you say in those moments, right? I don't know, right? I just sat there honestly and held her hand and she was mostly in and out, but the most I I said was simply something to just remind her that this is why Jesus came. What she's experiencing, the the, the sadness, the fear, the pain, all of it, this is why he came. So that these things, these moments don't have to define us. That they do not have, even as ugly and as terrible as it, they do not have to have the last word that Jesus through his death and resurrection is the hero that we long for and the hero that we need. Every other hero the world has ever known fights for the innocent against the enemies. Only this hero dies for his enemies. Only this hero gives up his life, truly the only innocent life who's ever lived, gives it up on our behalf so that we can live. He is our savior our God, our hero, not simply the hero we expect. He's the hero we most desperately need. And this morning we've got an opportunity to really to reaffirm this, this hope that we have um, and, and to even just sort of recommit this, this hope to him and, and to anticipate the, the time when he will return to us as we gather around his table. Because just moments before he was universally despised and rejected. All right? the, the night before he bore our griefs, was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Just before he was punished to give us peace, led silently like a lamb to the slaughter. The night before the darkest day, Jesus took bread. He broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And similarly, he took the cup and he said, this is, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of our sins. And so we reaffirm that. We proclaim that here together in this place. Before we come, why don't we take just a moment 
uh, to reflect on these things. If you've, if you've embraced Jesus, if he is your hope, maybe take this moment just to thank him for all that he is for us, all that he promises to be with us, that he truly is the God that we long for and that we need. Thank him for that. And maybe, maybe think about where your hopes need to be realigned as you anticipate his return. Um, or if that, if that doesn't describe you, maybe continue just sort of reflecting on what are those other things? What are those competing offers that you run towards to place your hope in instead of Jesus? And what are those things promising you uh, that Jesus doesn't promise even more? So let's pray quietly now together. Let's pray. God, I am just so amazed that you in your infinite wisdom, in your your sovereign grace, that you have found a way to destroy the evil in our world, to be victorious and just and righteous, everything that we long for, and that you have found a way to do so without also destroying us. That you yourself, through your son, that you have paid our debt, that you absorbed the wrath that should be ours, that you died the death that belonged to me, so that now we can stand before you forgiven, and not just forgiven, but given new life and hope, that you look at us now as your sons and daughters. What an incredible hero you are. And so God, I pray that as we come to this table together, that you would meet with us, that truly we would commune with you and with one another in this tangible reminder of what you have done, the difficult road you walked to give us this life. We ask these things for the glory of your son, Jesus. Amen.